Jesus saves. That is the truth that we celebrate today. It's the greatest truth that this world has ever known. And it's the only true hope in times when things look difficult and dire. Today we celebrate Easter. This is an exciting celebration. And I am so thankful that you're tuned in this morning. Before we jump into the word together, I want to start in prayer. So let's just begin and and give this time to the Lord and ask him to be involved and to teach us what he would want to teach us in this time, uh, to be glorified in all that's said and done here today. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you conquered death. We thank you that that is a fact of history that changes everything. Thank you that we can know that with confidence. Thank you for the hope that that gives us in the middle of dark times. Jesus, I pray that today you would be glorified in all that I say and all that we do here. And I pray for every single person that's tuning in this morning that this celebration of Easter would be one that they would never forget. Even though we're locked in our homes and in quarantine throughout the world, God, you are alive today and that gives us great joy and great hope. So we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Jesus saves. That is a fact. And today we celebrate that joy and we remember what Jesus accomplished for us on Easter 2,000 years ago. Today I'm going to be talking about three game-changing Easter guarantees. Three game-changing Easter guarantees. We're in the middle of a difficult time globally All throughout the earth, there are stories of sickness and death and pain and suffering and financial loss and so much more. And at this time, in the middle of those hardships, we celebrate the hope of all humanity. And the hope that we celebrate today carries with it guarantees that we can be absolutely confident in. I'm going to be sharing with you from 1 Corinthians, from a very, very famous chapter on the resurrection, chapter 15. You're welcome to turn there now if you'd like, and we'll be reading together from that in just a minute. So in the middle of all these difficulties that the world is experiencing today, we celebrate the game changer of all game changers, Jesus' victory over death. Easter. So get excited about what we have to celebrate today. And as we celebrate Easter, we're going to also take communion together. And so I want to remind you, Pastor Tim already let us know that this was coming, but right now, maybe go find some bread or crackers, something like that, some juice, and be ready because in a short period of time, we're going to be celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper, together. So 1 Corinthians is an incredible book that Paul wrote to some special believers. And in this book, he's clarifying Christian doctrine, things like the resurrection and what that means for believers. And he's dealing with some problems in the church. And before I jump into our passage, I want to kind of tell you a little bit about what's going on here. We read in Acts 18 that Paul travels into Corinth Uh, from Athens, and he probably walked along this road that you're seeing right now. This was the main road into the city of Corinth. 
I walked this road, I took this picture, and I could almost imagine what it was like for the Apostle Paul to be walking into Corinth at that time. It's a beautiful, beautiful area. If you've never been to Greece and seen the Aegean Sea and the Green Hills, it is absolutely gorgeous. So he comes into this city, and as he usually does, it says, as was his custom in Acts uh, 17.2, he's preaching the gospel city after city after city. And when he gets to this city, to Corinth, he goes and he preaches in the synagogue. There's a picture here that shows some inscriptions of some menorahs, and it actually has uh, an inscription that says the synagogue of the Jews there. So this is the place where Paul would have been preaching to those Jewish believers that happened to be in the city of Corinth. That's where he started, but he ended up sharing with others too, many of the different people that lived in Corinth. And you see here a picture of what some of those people might have looked like. These were some of the people of Corinth here. As you can tell, their hair and their beard styles looked a lot like mine after a few weeks in, in quarantine. And uh, these people were precious people. In fact, Paul, while he's in Corinth, he meets some really special ministry partners. He meets uh, Priscilla and Aquila. You're familiar with them, I'm sure. We hear about them often throughout the New Testament. He also meets Erastus. We maybe haven't heard his name as much as Priscilla and Aquila's names, but we read about him in the book of Romans. We read about him in 2 Timothy. He became a, a traveling partner with Paul, one of Paul's key guys. And he was from Corinth. This is where he would have first heard the gospel when Paul showed up there. In fact, in, in Romans, we see a title of Erastus, and we, we read in Romans that he had a position of influence in the city of Corinth. And that position of influence is actually preserved archaeologically in the Erastus inscription, which is in Corinth to this day. You're looking at a picture of it there. It bears his name. It also describes his position of influence in the community. And you can go visit it today. So whenever we read scripture, I think it's important to remember we are reading truth. These are real people, real places, and that's what we see here. So Paul comes into Corinth. He shares the gospel with the Corinthians, and many come to believe in Jesus, we're told. A church is born there, and we see the Corinthian letters that are written after this time to the believers in that church. And one of the core doctrines that Paul is helping them understand is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the implications of that for believers. So today we celebrate this resurrection. And everything that we're going to talk about is based on that. Remember, uh, in Matthew 28, we we read of these women that went to the tomb to, to see what was happening there. And they encounter this angel. It's in Matthew 28, verse 6. And the angel says to these women, He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. That is a fact of history, and it changes everything. And it gives us confidence as we live out our lives today. And that is one of the main things that Paul is helping these Corinthians understand. 
So let's read together. We're going to read beginning in verse 50, actually, in uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says here, What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your sting, where death is your sting, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Uh, This is an incredible passage, and we read here a few guarantees that are based on the truth of the resurrection. Uh, I'm going to tell you what those are, and then I want to jump into a little of the evidence for the resurrection before we start to unpack those guarantees. The the three guarantees, though, just to set you up for the rest of this talk, are number one, your enemy will be swallowed up in victory. So whatever you're fearing today, I want you to leave with the assurance that your enemy will be swallowed up in victory. And number two, your work for Jesus will impact history. What we do for the Lord today is not in vain. There's a purpose in it, and it will actually matter. And number three, your reward will last for eternity. Those are three guarantees that we can be confident in based on the truth of the resurrection. So based on the resurrection, I want to uh, begin by talking about that resurrection and the reason that we can believe it is true. See, this isn't just the Christian myth that we celebrate this time of year. You might have seen the American Atheist billboards. It's just a myth and you know it. Well, that's wrong. The evidence for the resurrection is solid. And based on that evidence, we walk with incredible confidence in the guarantees that we have. So here's what I want to ask you to do before we jump in any further. Our world is in the middle of an unparalleled time. There is pain and suffering all over the place. I've had multiple friends that have asked for prayer for friends of theirs who have lost loved ones due to this virus. All throughout the earth, we're hearing stories of our medical professionals and others that are sacrificing so much to combat this virus. And we're hearing economic crisis and struggles like we haven't in many decades. And in the midst of all of this, I want to ask you to take a break. Uh, Remember the story, I'm sure you've heard it, from the soldiers in World War I in the Christmas of 1914. These soldiers, the Germans and the British, were fighting, they were killing each other. And that Christmas in 1914, they paused from their hostilities 
and they celebrated the joy of Christmas. I want us to do that right now. So whatever anxieties or fears you have, whatever stresses you have, whatever sadness you have, I'm going to ask you just put that aside and let's celebrate the incredible joy of Easter together. So I told you that Paul is basing some of these guarantees on the fact of the resurrection. And so I want to read how he introduces this chapter, a few verses in the beginning of chapter 15. And then I want to explain for you some of the evidence for the resurrection. So let's go together to the beginning of chapter 15 and read verses 3 through 8. Paul tells these Corinthians, For I passed on to you, as, of, as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Paul is quoting here a poem or a song that Christian believers would recite concerning the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And scholars have now dated that poem, that song, back to the year of Christ's death and resurrection. This is not a myth that unfolded over time, but this is a fact of history. Paul says here that, that this happened according to the scriptures. You know, there were well over 100 messianic prophecies that foretold of the coming Messiah who would even die for our sins. In, in Daniel chapter 9, we read that, that the Messiah will come and be cut off for our transgressions. And Daniel actually gives us the number of years before that would happen. And scholars have pinpointed the exact date of Christ's resurrection and the exact time of his crucifixion prophesied nearly 500 years before by Daniel. Daniel got it right. Uh, in the Psalms and in Zechariah, we see that he would die by crucifixion. Uh, we see also in both the Psalms and Isaiah that he would be resurrected, that he would live again. And this wasn't just an Old Testament thing. Jesus prophesied his own death and resurrection. And every single gospel writer includes his prophecies of his own death and resurrection. See, we know that this was something foretold from the past, and it's something that happened according to the scriptures. There's also incredible evidence for it today. Uh, Dr. Gary Habermas, who was right here at Hoffmantown Church a few years ago, you see the picture of him preaching from our, our pulpit right here in the auditorium. He is the world-renowned expert on the evidence for the resurrection. And he has described several facts of the resurrection that even skeptics would agree are true. Let me read some of those to you. Number one, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Number two, he was buried in a private tomb. Number three, his disciples were initially discouraged. Number four, Jesus' tomb was found empty shortly after his burial. Okay, number five, the disciples and numerous others were convinced they saw the risen Christ. Number six, their lives were completely transformed by this, even to the point of being willing to suffer persecution and death. 
Number seven, the story of the resurrection took place very early. It goes back to the year of the event. It's not a myth that developed over time. The testimony took place initially in Jerusalem. That's absolutely important. That's the one place on this earth that it could have been refuted. So they didn't go and tell it in Rome that he rose, but neglect to tell it in Jerusalem where it happened. It began right where it happened. Number nine, the gospel from the beginning centered on this. And that's what Paul says here. He says that what I received, I gave to you right from the beginning. Okay. Number 10, Sunday became the primary day for gathering for those Christian converts. The, whatever happened to, to get them to change from the Sabbath to a Sunday was an astronomical event, and the resurrection was that event. Uh, 11, James went from skeptic to believer because of the resurrection. James was a brother of Jesus Christ. And number 12, Paul did too. So those are facts that even skeptical scholars would agree are true. Now, they have to deal with those facts. You can't just say, I, I just forget about the facts. Historians come up with ways of describing the historical evidence. So some of the rebuttals to this evidence would be these. Some would say, oh, he swooned. You might have heard of swoon theory. So he went into the tomb, but he, he didn't really die. He kind of resuscitated and came back out. Well, first of all, that's not the case. Roman soldiers were experts at making sure people were dead. And we actually see in this story medical eyewitness evidence. John describes pericardial effusion that tells us Jesus really was dead. But listen, even if he wasn't really dead and somehow resuscitated, he couldn't have moved a two-ton rock nor overpowered a Roman guard. And even if he did, his disciples surely wouldn't have gone on to face death because of that. That would be something far different than a resurrection and none of them would have been willing to die for that lie. You know, some people would say the body was moved or stolen. We know that's not the case. Because if it was moved, the authorities simply would have said, hey, he didn't really rise from the dead, the body was moved. Uh, or if it was stolen, we wouldn't have a lot of the other evidence that we have. The disciples couldn't have overpowered this Roman guard, an elite military force of the time. And even if they did, again, they wouldn't go on to die for that lie. Okay? The, the, the body being moved or stolen wouldn't answer all the data. Another big one right now is a mass hallucination. They, all these eyewitnesses, 500 plus, they all just had a shared hallucination. Unfortunately for the skeptic, there's no evidence in psychology of mass hallucinations. Those don't happen. And even if they did, it wouldn't explain things like the empty tomb. You might be catching on here to what goes on when the skeptic tries to get rid of the evidence for the resurrection. One theory might answer a couple data points, but it doesn't answer the others. The mass hallucination is a crazy theory. It would explain some of the eyewitness testimony, but it would not answer the empty tomb. The stolen body answer is also crazy, and it might explain the empty tomb, but not the eyewitnesses. So what ends up happening to get out of the evidence for the resurrection is the skeptic has to string together a whole bunch of implausible theories to get out of accepting the fact that lies right before our faces. The resurrection is a fact. The biggest 
skeptic alive today looks at all these theories, these rebuttals, okay? And here's his direct quote. Am I proposing that this is what really happened? All these rebuttals that I just shared with you and others similar to these. Am I proposing that this is what really happened? And he answers his own rhetorical question saying, absolutely not. Even he recognizes that these rebuttals do not get us out of the evidence for the resurrection. Okay, So he says this. He says, but it doesn't matter because resurrections don't happen. So I'm not going to believe whatever the evidence is because resurrections just don't happen. What he's doing is a logical fallacy called begging the question. It's assuming resurrections can't happen. It's ignoring the evidence for resurrections and then coming up with a conclusion that because I presumed at the beginning resurrections don't happen, that's what the reality is. This is not a way to get out of the evidence for the resurrection. As believers, what we can know for certain is that the resurrection is a fact of history established by the historical evidence, and this gives us great hope. The pharaohs built pyramids trying to achieve immortality, yet they died. The the first emperor of China would take mercury pills trying to achieve immortality, yet he died. History is full of religious figures that have promised immortality and eternal life, yet they died. There is only one person in the history of the world that has demonstrated power over death, and that is Jesus Christ. Right in Jerusalem, the picture that that you're about to see on your screens, Jesus came and conquered death once and for all, and that is a fact of history. And he says in John 6.40 that he will do the same for anyone who believes in him. So for all of you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus, he has guaranteed you eternal life. He has promised you that he will raise you from the dead. Now, the guarantees that we're going to talk about rest on that foundation. So let's jump in and talk about the game-changing guarantee number one, okay? Because of Easter, you know your enemy will be swallowed up in victory. I'm going to read a couple verses here. We read them a minute ago. I'm going to go back and read them again, starting in verse 54 and going through 57. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then this saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a guarantee. Your enemy will be swallowed up in victory. Paul, when he says this, he's referencing Isaiah 25, where we're told that our enemy, death, will be swallowed up once and for all. And he's also quoting from Hosea 13, where we read that he will destroy death. Those two things happened here. Okay, I want to tell you a little bit about a word that, uh, that Paul uses here when he says swallowed up. He uses the Greek word katapino, and it means to swallow, to devour, to destroy. And I want to give you a, a picture that resonates with me. 
I'm not a big movie guy. I don't watch a lot of movies, and I typically fall asleep in most of the movies that I do watch. But I do really like dinosaurs, and so the Jurassic Park movies always kind of get me. And in Jurassic World, at the end of the movie, uh, sorry if I'm going to blow this for you if you haven't seen it, but there's this epic battle, right, where our, our stars of our movie are being chased by Indominus Rex, and then there's a T-Rex involved, and then there's a Velociraptor involved, and there's death and destruction and chaos all around, and things crashing and burning and fires and teeth. It's terrible. You might think it feels a little bit uh, like life today in the middle of a chaotic world. What's going to go wrong next? And as this battle scene unfolds, all of a sudden, surprise, a Mosasaurus leaps up out of the adjacent lagoon and takes the enemy to the bottom of that lake, devouring it once and for all. I thought this was such a great mental picture of what Jesus has done with our great enemy, death. And that's what we celebrate today. See, the sting of death is sin. Jesus paid for that at the cross. Sin can no longer separate me for eternity from my Savior. Because of Jesus, I have the guarantee of eternal life. And not only has he rescued me from death, he's even rescued me from the fear of death. Okay? In Hebrews 2, we're told that he's rescued us from the fear of death. I used to fear death so much. It's one of the the biggest fears that I've ever had in my life. And when I share my testimony, I typically talk about that. And I remember one of the first times I was interviewing Dr. Gary Habermas uh, for my radio show, I confessed that to him. Just I struggle with my own fear of death. I can trust that Jesus rose from the death, but I have a lot of fear about my own death. And And he encouraged me, Nate, if Jesus conquered death, and he promised to do that for you. How can you fear that about your own life? That's what Paul is telling the Corinthians. Jesus conquered death. And because of that, you can live with the absolute guarantee that your enemy will be swallowed up in victory as well. Jesus tells uh, Mary and Martha, remember, I am the resurrection and the life in John 11. That is what we celebrate today. Jesus, our Savior, the resurrection and the life who has guaranteed us victory over our enemy. That is a guarantee that you can ground your life on. Number two, the game-changing guarantee of Easter that that we celebrate today, the second one is your work for Jesus will impact history. Paul goes on and tells these Corinthians, therefore, and I'm going to read it here in verse 58, based on all of this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. See, because Jesus conquered death, we can know that our work for the Lord will matter. It's going to impact history. The Great Commission is still our mission. It's still our calling. Right now, we live in a world that is full of pain and suffering. We as believers know that our enemy will be swallowed up in victory, but there are a lot of people around us that don't share that confidence right now. And when they turn on the news at night, they have stress and anxiety and fear. And maybe even some of you listening today share that fear. 
I want you to know, believers, there is work for us to do in these hard times. The world needs to know the hope that we have. You know, a a survey from last August in England found that 89% of Gen Zers, those are the 5 to 25-year-olds, feel their lives are meaningless. We live in a world of meaninglessness. Uh, That same group has higher levels of loneliness than any that's ever been recorded. Uh, Right now, we have heard, there was a stat out last week from the Kaiser Family Foundation, that nearly half of all Americans are struggling with mental illness as a result of the coronavirus outbreak. We are living in some difficult times. Suicide rates are expected to skyrocket as a result of this virus and its economic impacts. I won't even tell you the statistics that have been projected. They are astronomical. There are people that are hopeless, but we have hope. I want to show you a picture of uh, my dear friends Marty and Leslie Fuentes. They're members here at Hoffmantown. And not too long ago, just a few months ago, a man came to this church and probably entered through the doors near me right here, probably met Marty right here where I'm standing. Uh, This man was a doctor. He had a good career and probably had a wonderful life. But he needed Jesus. He needed hope. Marty and Leslie were able to walk through the gospel with him and lead him to Christ. And Marty began discipling this doctor, helping him grow in his faith. Just a few weeks ago, this new brother in Christ lost his life in a, home, in a house fire. A, a tragic story. Before I go on with, with the story, I want to pause. This man was working diligently to help people affected by COVID. He was a pulmonologist. And I just want to take a minute to recognize the hard work of so many doctors and nurses and medical professionals just like him. And so many others doing so much for each of us during this time. But due to his long hours, he fell asleep with something on the stove and he lost his life. Friends, this story illustrates the gravity of the gospel need. There are people today all around us that need to know the hope that we have. Jesus implored his disciples in John 4. He says, open your eyes and see that the fields are ripe for harvest. Don't go about with closed eyes to the gospel opportunities all around you, but open them up and see that the people around you are reaching out for a savior. I saw another statistic last week. This came from uh, the Joshua Fund. It was commissioned by Joel Rosenberg and carried out by McLaughlin and Associates, a national pollster. And they found that nearly one-fourth of all non-Christian Americans have begun reading the Bible, watching online sermons, and talking to Christian friends about Jesus since the outbreak of this coronavirus. Here's the reality. We have hope that the world needs, and the world is reaching out right now saying, share that hope with me. I implore you, dear brothers and sisters, please share with them. Your work for the Lord will impact history. Game changer number three. Are you ready for this? Your reward will last for eternity. This is a guarantee based on the resurrection. Your reward will last for eternity. I want to read that last little part of verse 58 again. He says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
Friends, we are looking towards that eternity that the resurrection guarantees us. And because the resurrection happened, our eternity as believers is secure. Knowing that, we also know that we will be rewarded for all the ways that we trust and follow the Lord here on this planet. And he is anxious to reward believers. Paul had previously told these Corinthians in chapter 3 about uh, the, the rewards that, that they would, would receive. He talked about building in this life with gold, silver, and precious stones instead of wood, hay, and stubble. He talks to these same Corinthians later in the second uh, letter that he sends them, in 2 Corinthians 5, and he tells them about the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, before which we will all stand. And as believers, it will not be a place where your sin is brought up. That was judged at the cross. As believers, that Bema will be a place of reward. So for each of us as believers, we will stand before him at that, that Bema seat. And when Paul told this to the Corinthians, he was referencing this right here. This is a picture of the Bema seat in Corinth. And if you, if you go back to Acts 18, verses 12 through 17, Paul is drugged before Gallio to this very spot. This is the spot that that happened. And in Acts, uh, Luke uses the word Bema. And actually, let's scroll in on the middle of that there. Let's zoom in, and you'll actually see the sign that you can, you can read today. It says Bema. You can visit the place that's referenced in Acts that happened in Corinth with Paul being brought there. Luckily, he was released. But Paul, when he talks about the Bema with these Corinthians, this is what they were remembering right in the center of their community. And Paul is saying each of us believers will stand before the Bema seat of Christ to receive our reward. And that's something we can be confident in. And Paul, because of that confidence, lived his life in a confident way. In 1 Corinthians 9, he, he talks to the Corinthians about a reward. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat my body into submission, knowing that that reward is coming. I'm going to live with that in mind. You know, what he was referring to with that passage in 1 Corinthians 9 was the Isthmian Games. It was the Corinthian counterpart to the Olympics. And it was very famous and very popular. And the competitors were, were diligent athletes, and the victor would be given a crown that was perishable. It was a wreath made out of pine needles, out of a pine tree like you see here from that region of the Aegean Sea. And that would, that would wither away. It would not last. But Paul said, we do it for something that will last. Those athletes would take that wreath and they'd present it back in their hometowns to their town deities. Paul says what we do, we do for the Lord and it will last for eternity, unlike that perishable wreath. Friends, there are believers around the world living with that eternal perspective. Uh, just over three weeks ago, I was uh, training Iranian believers. Here's a picture of some of them in Europe. I was there with my family. One of the leaders here, he's not pictured in this picture. Not everyone that was there was pictured in the picture. Uh, has had four friends martyred for Christ, four Iranian believers martyred for Christ. Friends, these believers are living with the expectation of heaven in front of them. And I think we can follow their example. So here's what I want to ask you to do as you respond to the message that I've shared with you. We have these guarantees, so how might I respond? 
I want to encourage you, as God leads and in the power of his Holy Spirit, to, to pray, to seek God's face during this hard time, uh, to follow the guidelines of our officials, yet to make the most of the situation as well, to volunteer, to give financially. That could be to other causes. That could be to your church. During times like this, everyone's finances go down, and we need to be generous. I would encourage you to communicate with your sphere of influence. You can do that in a technological way that's never been possible before. And to share your faith, please share the hope that you have with those around you. Well, today we celebrate a fact, not a fantasy. There are three game-changing Easter guarantees based on that fact. Your enemy will be swallowed up in victory. Your work for the Lord will impact history. And your reward will last for eternity. If you've already begun a walk with Jesus through faith, I encourage you to walk these things out and to live with this confidence. And if you have not, I encourage you to respond to him today. You know, the Bible says that we are all sinners, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins because he loved us, and that now by believing in him as Savior and Lord, we can be saved. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus alone as Savior and Lord, I implore you, do that now. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, today is the day of salvation. Why wait another day? And I would invite you to pray with me now. Uh, Prayer doesn't save you, but it's a great way to verbalize your faith. Uh, You could say something like this. Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me eternal life. Today, I surrender to you as my Savior and my Lord. Please come into my life and make me the kind of person that you want me to be. Amen. You know, the Bible promises you that if if you took that step to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord today, that you are his child. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now I want to to move from that message of the encouragement that we have in Easter into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And for a lot of you, you're familiar with this. But maybe for some of you, you're not. Especially maybe if you just trusted Christ or maybe you're still thinking about all of this. This is something that's a little new. So I want to just give you a little bit of a backdrop to it. In Luke chapter 22... Jesus celebrates a last supper with his disciples. And during that time, he tells them that, he gave, that he's going to give his body for them and his blood for them. And he breaks bread with them and drinks wine with them and encourages them to do the same in remembrance, in remembrance of what he is doing for them at the cross at that time. And now Christians, since that time, have taken the opportunity to break bread together and to drink this cup together in remembrance of what Jesus did for us at the cross and what we celebrate on Easter. Now, the Bible is real clear, and Paul tells these Corinthians, the same Corinthians that we've been talking about, the same book we've been reading from, back in chapter 11, he warns the Corinthians that everyone should examine themselves before they take this cup, before they eat this bread. He says, don't do it without first examining yourself. So I want to let you know, if, if you are a believer, 
you can take communion. And if you aren't a believer, I would ask you not to. If you are a believer, I hope that you have that bread and that juice that we invited you to go get at the beginning of this message. If you haven't, now would be a great time to go and get those because we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. In Luke 11, I mean in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 24, I'll go ahead and read it. Paul talks to these uh, Corinthians about this very thing. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So I want to invite you right now to to take that bread. I have one of these um, fancy little communion cups here. But I want to invite you to take that bread right now. And to search your heart, I'm going to pray before we eat this bread. And I'm going to invite you just to search your heart. To say, Jesus, thank you for for giving your body for me on that cross. The, The fact that those nails went through your wrists and through your feet and those thorns went into your head and that spear went into your side and those that that whipping went across your back. God, thank you that that you allowed your body to be mutilated for my sake and that you took my sins on you on that cross. Pray with me right now. Uh, Jesus, uh, if if there's anything that you want me to be aware of in my life right now, God, reveal it to me that I might uh, confess it to you. And as God makes you, anything, makes you aware of anything in your life that you might need to ask his forgiveness for, just, just ask his forgiveness right now. He promises us in 1 John, right, that, that if we confess anything to him, he will, he will cleanse us and forgive us. He'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Because of what he did at the cross right now, you have that confidence that no sin that could be coming across your mind right now is unforgivable. Ask him to forgive you for that right now. Jesus, we thank you that you gave your body for us on that cross. And we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate that today. Amen. Go ahead and take that bread in remembrance of what he did for you at the cross. You know, uh, Jesus didn't end there, and Paul doesn't either. Paul continues in verses 25 through 26. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So today we're going to uh, take this cup in remembrance of him. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for your, your blood that was shed for my sins. And the blood that, that you gave on that cross, God, so that I could be right with you today. 
Uh, Jesus, uh, thank you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, I hope you've been encouraged by this Easter service. I want to remind you that we won't always be only online. I'm sure we always will be online. But before you know it, we'll be meeting right back here together. Get excited about that time. Until then, I want to encourage you to keep tuning in online. If you don't have a home church and you're tuning in this morning, I would love to invite you to make Hoffmantown your home church. This is a great place to grow in your faith, to grow in your walk with God. Thank you so much for watching this morning. Happy Easter. Share the hope that you have with the people around you today. They desperately need it. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor Jesus saves, Jesus saves. All the saints will shout together. God bless and keep you and your families. Take care.